Welcome to the Citizen Also Podcast. It's inevitable. It seems like I have to record all of my intros in my car. That's okay. This week I interviewed Michael Coomer, blogger, biohacker, homesetter. Just a great guy. One of the things he talked about in the interview was how our genetics are not matching up to the environment we live in. And because of this mismatch, we have to work really hard to create our own environment to live an optimal healthy life. So I know health and fitness and wellness take a lot of effort, but the reality is without that effort, our health will quickly deteriorate. You're gonna love this episode. Michael, thank you so much for doing it and I'll see you guys soon. Um, so I'm Austrian, okay. um, speak German, but I think the name is actually Eastern European. I think it's, is it Croatian or some, something? Uh, our ancestors is, is, is Eastern European on one side of the family. Okay. So I think that's where it's from. Where were you born? In, In Austria. Austria. Okay. Uh, when uh, did you come to America? 2007. So it's been okay. a while. Okay, wow. Do you like it here? Yeah. Uh, can't yeah. complain. Wouldn't be here. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people do complain while they're here. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm a firm believer in either you change or you leave it. And, and so um, I do what I can to change what I can influence. And the rest, I guess, I, I leave her. You know, I would be happy. Yeah. So. And you have two, two kids? Oh, how mm -hmm. old are your kids? Correct, yep. Uh, nine and okay. seven. Perfect ages. Uh, born. Yeah, <laughs> getting easier, they're getting more uh, independent, I guess. So that's yeah. Nice. Well, good. So I was reading your blog. I love your blog, by the way. And Thank the you. biggest reason I wanted to bring you on is we totally agree with the mismatch of environment and our genetics. Mm -hmm. How did you come up with yeah. this idea? I mean, you know, it, it, that's not something that I, you know, one day woke up and said, oh, I think there is something wrong, you know. Um, I, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I noticed how my health was deteriorating, <laughs> funny enough, um, shortly after I came to this country and then start, started adopting, you know, the standard American diet um, and stopped working out. And, um, and then as, you know, I, I realized something is not quite right and it's heading in the direction that I don't really like. And I started making changes and doing more research. I discovered, you know, other people that um, that came to the same conclusions and were and still are significantly smarter than I am, and and pointed out, you know, there is there is a disconnect between how we are supposed to um, live in terms of, you know, how we eat, how we sleep, how we um, how we move, how we manage stress, or what type of stressors we expose ourselves to. And, um, and and everything else, you know. And so I'm like, okay, there is there is something to it. And, and the more and more I, the older I get, I guess maybe maybe one could say, you know, the, the grumpier I get. But I, I I start to realize that everything that we do as humans to make our life better is bullshit. Yeah. You know, in some way, in one way or another, negatively Im impacts our health. You know, starting with you know, well, not starting with, but lead paint, nonstick, you know, cookware. Um, you know, LED lighting. I mean, all of those things. I mean, everything we do, everything we invent to make life better negatively impacts our health to varying degrees. And, and so I'm like, wow, you know, we really need to not only stop what we are doing, but really backpedal and try to, you know, go back to the basics, um, really, and remove many of those modern things, or at least 
try to expose ourselves only in in small doses doses you know to those things be it you know artificial light be it um, man-made emfs be it vegetables you know modern grown vegetables you know and all of those things i'm like wow this is really you know we are living in in a completely foreign environment as far as our genetics are concerned and as and as far as what our bodies can handle and the result of that is you know when you just you know go down the street and you 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 look at people how they look how they behave how they you know what they eat and and what the consequences of those behaviors are you know we are a nation and that doesn't only apply to the us of course it applies to most modern societies and maybe most countries in the world you know everyone is sick um, or the majority of people are sick and that's not the default you know we are not supposed to be sick certainly not at you know at our age you know at 30 40 50 or what have you e even into old age i would argue that you're not supposed to get sick with a chronic disease that's in my opinion you know 95 percent lifestyle induced and yeah so i heard on another podcast you did that your grandfather passed away of colon cancer was there something in mm -hmm. your life health-wise that triggered you to really investigate this? Um, it wasn't really anything, no health issue. I mean, I had, I've, I had health issues, but for, oh, my camera is zooming in and out. Okay. Um, it wasn't really something that I was dealing with. Um, not because I wasn't dealing with stuff, but I thought whatever I had was normal. You know, that's just normal. And, and for me, that was IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, and just digestive issues, okay. you know, and, and being sick a lot and um, having, you know, like, like skin issues and all kinds of, you know, things that I thought, well, that's just, you know, how, how it works. You know, my going back to what you just said, you know, my, my dad has that, you know, GI issues, his dad, you know, died of, of colon cancer. And so that's just part of the family. It runs in the family and there is not really anything I can do about it. But it was actually when I met a friend who was on a paleo diet. At, and at a time, I've never heard about paleo diet or caveman style eating or anything like that. And, and at first I thought, you know, he was crazy. <laughs> yeah. uh, but then as I asked more questions and starting doing my own research, I'm like, well, this is really, I think he's onto something. And when we then, my wife and I switched to a paleo diet, Suddenly, all my gut issues went away. I'm not overnight, but within within days, maybe within two weeks, I was I, I had no longer you know that bloating and that you know uh, all the issues that come with IBS. And I'm like, the only thing I changed was my diet by not eating most of the things I used to, and suddenly I'm healed, you know. And now it's ten years later, and I'm still healed, you know. So evidently, something I did. Um, you know, cause those issues to go away. And from that point forward, it was really, I, I started paying way more attention to every single nuance of, of how I feel, how I wake up in the morning, how I react to food, how I react to stress, um, to a point where now I think like I, I, I might be even oversensitive where I feel like if I'm not a hundred percent, but only 98, I'm like, okay, something is off. What is it? What could it be? Even though, you know, chill out, it doesn't really matter. You know, 2% don't matter. Tomorrow you're going to be back to a hundred. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's gotten to a point where you, you are really so in tune with your body that you notice immediately if you're doing something you're not supposed to. And, uh, and most people, I think, don't have that 
sensitivity or that capability of of listening to their own body. Um, and that's, I think, unfortunately a challenge because especially in a nutritional world where you get so much information and, you know, the best information really I can give you is listen to your body. But if you, if you don't know how it feels to feel good, what are you going to listen for? You yeah. know, you already feel crappy, you know, I mean, it's not going to get any worse likely, you know, if you eat, you know, a hamburger more or less, you know? So I follow your blog and your Instagram and you do a lot of self-tracking. Yeah. Um, is that how you're gauging how you're feeling? Are there certain biomarkers you're following? No, not really. I mean, I, I try to uh, correlate how I feel with what I see in data. And most of the time it matches. Sometimes it doesn't. And it's kind of interesting to figure out why that would be. You know, why is it that I um, woke up maybe less rested, but my sleep data and my HRV and my resting heart rate would say, you know, otherwise? Uh, that happens from time to time, but usually I just use it as a confirmation to kind of um, confirm that what I think I feel is what the data shows, and then I move on. So I'm, I'm not someone who, you know, I mean, I do track many things every day, but I don't pay close attention to all of those things every day because there's also a risk I've seen, not so much with me, but with friends and family members who get stressed out over the data. You know, that's obviously, you know, counterproductive. Um, and so I don't pay too close attention to it, but I do track a lot of things. And if I need to, I go and look and say, okay, does that actually match how I feel? And if it does, great. If not, I try to think about why that could be. Is it, you know, is the device wrong or am I, is my, my, my judgment clouded by, I don't know, something, you know, maybe I want to believe something that's not happening. Okay. What are some of the major things you're, I know you have a glucose monitor. Not all the time. I mean, I do that on and off, okay. uh, mostly for experiments. Um, right now, actually, so, you know, I, I do wear a pen, not right now, but I'm going to put it on here in a minute. It's an NAD kind of patch. I just saw that. To boost okay. my uh, NAD levels to see how that, you know, what that does to my, my, I don't know, longevity or at least to my NAD blood markers, you know, and see if, if I can if I can improve them. Um, but usually what I do is I have a whoop strap, I have an aura ring, um, and I have eight sleep that tracks, you know, sleep metrics. Um, then I, and I use glucose monitors on and off. Uh, sometimes I use my, my ketone, breath ketone meter to see, um, if I'm in ketosis, um, and, you know, and, and how carbs impact my level of ketosis or, you know, I, I'm not on a ketogenic diet every day by, by, by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, sometimes with combined with fasting, I do get back into ketosis and I kind of, you know, want to see how deep and how long it takes me to get back in and stuff. Okay. Um, yeah, but th those are the, the things that I, I guess, track on a, on a, on a regular sure. basis. Is your goal to try to achieve ketosis or if you get into it, good? If you don't, who cares? Not anymore. I mean, I used to be on a keto diet for, I think I did it for like three years, almost three years. And um, it, it has a lot of benefits, but I now see it more as a tool um, to accomplish certain or to reach certain goals. But I no longer think that um, humans need to be in ketosis 24-7, 365 days a year. Um, I've noticed personally that the fewer carbs I consume, especially in the evening, the more likely I have to get up and pee at night, which disrupts my sleep. And I attribute that to me running out of glycogen. And so, you know, whenever my liver makes glucose available by releasing glycogen, a lot of water gets flushed out and I need to pee. Um, also, I think my cortisol levels tend to be higher when I'm in ketosis because I do think to a degree 
not having carbs, especially on days when you work out a lot and your body needs to replenish those glycogen stores, it's a type of stressor, which can be, you know, you could argue it's a hormetic stressor, it's good for you, it makes you strong and more resilient. But nonetheless, I think it's a stressor. And so I, I, I think that my cortisol levels tend to, to rise earlier in the morning when I'm in ketosis or when I'm fasting. And so that's also has an impact on my sleep. And I figured, you know, I'd rather not wake up and sleep better most days than reaping the benefits of being in ketosis all the time. Uh, plus, you know, with, you know, if you do intense workouts, I don't think keto is the most um, appropriate diet if you dump glycogen a lot because that replenishing of those glycogen stores via gluconeogenesis I don't necessarily think that should be the default behavior of how you get glucose. I think it's more of a backup mechanism. I used to think otherwise, but just based on how I feel, I don't, I don't feel best. I feel great, but I don't feel my best if I'm in ketosis all the time. And I have similar experience. If I'm in ketosis for too long, I'll wake up at four in the morning, just wide awake, mm -hmm. and I can't go back to bed. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I think it's got to do with you know cortisol spike, you know. I think the body realizes, okay, we need, you know, glucose. There is a stress, you know, we need to do something that increases cortisol, and then and then you're yeah. up. Um, I've and I've I've made the same experience, and I don't. I mean, even though I like getting up early, um, I like getting enough rest more. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I I totally agree. And your number one of your eight pillars of health is sleep. Yeah, yes, correct. So I was yeah. looking at yeah. the times you go to bed. Are you still going to bed at eight thirty p.m.? Um, we actually changed. So, you know, we are now officially on the Kumar time zone because I think that, you know, the changing from daylight savings and, you know, back and forth is ridiculous. I agree. <laughs> and especially, I mean, we notice even more so with the kids who are like, guys, you guys, are, you have to go to bed, even though the sun is still out. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That's not, you know, consistent with when humans would go to sleep. You know, it would be after sunset or after the sun was gone, right? And so, even for us now at, you know, 830, the sun might still be out or at least it might not be dark yet. Right. And so going to bed is really counterintuitive. So, you know, I said, you know what, we're going to stick to the previous time zone and I just go to bed now an hour later and wake up an hour later. So that means, you know, it used to be like we were getting ready for bed at eight ish, but then really be in bed between 830 and then fall asleep by nine ish kind of. Now it's an hour later. Okay. Um, and I sleep in, and I sleep longer. I always thought I'm an early riser. I can't sleep in BS. You know, I can sleep in if, if I just manage my, my stress well. And if I don't start, you know, thinking about stuff first thing in the morning, I actually have no issue sleeping in. And, and sometimes now I even sometimes sleep like eight, eight and a half hours, which was unheard of just a year ago. Um, and I enjoy it. So just know? a year ago, how many hours of sleep were you getting? I mean, I always got my at least seven. That's my cutoff. I, I, I don't do well with less, but usually seven and a half is like my sweet spot. Now I do get at least seven and a half, sometimes even okay. more. I'm the same way. Anything less than seven, I'm toast the next day. Mm -hmm. yeah. but, but I have yeah. friends who say six hours is fine for them. So, I mean, there is that 1% that can get away with you know less sleep. I think most people think they're in that 1%. Um, and just don't understand how how it feels when you're really full of energy. That's what I think is going on in most cases. Um, but you know, I, I can I can speak for myself, and I know that less than seven, I, I function well. I, I I would argue I I function and perform better than most other people. 
but not you know compared to my baseline yeah. where I could be. So are you familiar with the author Matt Walker? He wrote the book Why We Sleep. Okay. No. I, I heard about the book. I never okay. read it. He just said there's nobody that can survive on six hours. Like you're fooling yourself if you think six hours okay. of sleep uh, is enough. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, you know, there, might, there might be, you know, genetic freaks, what have you. Yeah. My, you know, some people nap during the day then, you know, it makes some of that up. And, and, you know, there is, you know, an argument that maybe, you know, sleeping through the entire night in one shot is not, is not consistent with evolution. Maybe we did wake up in the middle did something and then went back to sleep or, you know, nap during the day or whatever. I don't know, you know, so I wouldn't necessarily rule it out to be effective. Personally, I prefer to get, you know, the sleep that I need in one shot and then be productive for the rest of the day. But I know many people who nap during the day, you know, for half an hour, an hour, whatever, and feel good with it. You know, I mean, why not? It's not me. Once I'm up, I'm up and I cannot shut down until I shut down for the night. I'm the, sa I'm the same way. <laughs> So I was looking at your blog and you, I just had Frank Yosa on my podcast a month ago and you uh -huh. were drinking his ketone drink, the snake water. Yes. Yeah. What, do you know Frank? Yeah. Not personally. I've never met him personally, but I talked to him. Okay. Uh, great guy. Quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, what did yeah. you think about the drink? I mean, I read your review, but tell me what you think. Yeah. I, I mean, I like it. I like the idea of of leveraging the power of ketones without necessarily having to be in ketosis. Yes. And so I've been chugging down a ton of his drinks, both the snake water as well as the hard ketones at night, um, instead of, you know, my glass of wine that I used to enjoy. Um, and I like it better. Um, you know, it, it both that the, the snake water is, you know, I usually drink water only, not even sparking water, even though now I started drinking, you know, like sparking water because I feel like, you know, sometimes when it's really hot, I come in sweaty, you know, working in the backyard or whatever, you know, it's something, some a carbonated beverage, you know, that's not crap, um, is something that I would like. And snake water fits that bill with the addition of providing me real energy in the form of a molecule that the body can actually use for energy instead of, you know, caffeine or, you know, some of the other glucose, I mean, it's a, you know, energy molecule too, but I don't really want to fill up on, on sugar, you know, for obvious reasons. And so I really like the drink. Um, I, I like how it tastes. I like how it, it works as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's not like, you know, I'm, I'm like doubled my energy because I'm fairly energetic as it is, but I can tell depending on how I time my carbs, um, which usually I try to do in the second half of the day towards the evening, because when I have carbs during the day, or even as my first meal, I, I can feel it in my head. You know, that, that, that spike and then drop in, in sugar, it does something to my energy levels, obviously, you know. And, and so if I do that, but then I have that snake water, I feel like, you know, my brain is still fueled with the right type of fuel. So it doesn't really register or doesn't let that drop in, in glucose negatively impact its performance. Okay. So... Yeah, I, I have like you it. tried the ketone ester? Like, okay, yes. tastes awful, but I think it works good yeah. for your brain. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely does. I mean, it, it, it's a, it's like medicine, but it, it works. I mean, there was no no question about it. I, I used it before um, before workouts even, um, and and you know just to boost you know mental clarity and mental performance. It definitely works. I think snake water is just a better tasting version, slightly less effective maybe. Uh, but then again, it you know it has some of the other ingredients that one could argue you know can help you with uh, with energy and and cognitive performance. 
I mean, in my case, I don't know to what degree because, you know, my diet is spot on. I get all of the amino acids and stuff that I need. Um, but still, it, it tastes great and it's, you know, it has ketones um, enough, you know, for me to be mentally um, better than I would normally be. Let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, I totally agree. So let's talk about your diet because supposedly yeah. meat causes cancer and kills you. Um, and you look like the healthiest person I know. <laughs> yeah. And I, you're, on, you're on a more animal-based diet now, correct? That's correct, yeah. So how uh, did you transition yeah. from paleo to animal-based? Um, there were keto and carnivore in between. Uh, but, it, it, you know, it, for me, it was a journey. I, when I first heard about paleo, I, and I didn't know that keto existed at the time. I didn't know that there were people just eating meat. I mean, maybe I might have heard about it, but I thought it was, you know, absolutely nuts at the time. And um, so with paleo, you know, I felt significantly better. And then, you know, at some point I realized, oh, you know, all those carbs, they, they are not good, you know. So and I discovered keto. I'm like, okay, keto, that's the diet we need to be on. Um, you know, I want to have that for the rest of my life. And then, you know, I realized, well, maybe keto is not something you want to do forever. And so I discovered carnivore. I'm like, well, it's kind of, you know, a keto as well because there are no carbs involved. Um, and it's, you know, it, those few things that you had on, on keto to make it more, I guess, socially compatible are out of the window <laughs> <Yeah>. too. <laughs> right? Um, but I'm like, I, I still want to try it because it kind of, you know, I, I never thought that carnival would be something I want to do for the rest of my life, but I, I thought it would be an interesting experiment to see how I would feel. And I felt similar to, um, the the keto uh, towards the end of my keto you know, I cut out most of the things that are that other people would consume on keto especially nut butters and stuff because they didn't sit well with me um, so I kind of was already on a on a somewhat animal based approach before I started with with carnivore and with carnivore basically confirmed to me it's not a bad diet but I'm based on my lifestyle I, I need some carbs okay. or I do better with carbs I don't need them but I do better with carbs and so that then led to the transition to an animal-based diet. And coincidentally, roughly about the same time, I met Paul Saladino in Costa Rica for the first animal-based retreat and learned more about, you know, his approach and why, you know, he includes, you know, certain sweet seasonal fruits and, and especially raw honey. I mean, we have, you know, I'm a beekeeper, so we have five hives in the backyard. And so honey was kind of, you know, a natural addition to, to our diet because we, you know, we have it free of charge, so to say. And, um, and I realized that, you know, this is probably the right framework for me because there is still a lot of flexibility within animal-based eating. You know, you can pick and choose the fruits that do well for you. But not every fruit I can have in, in, in greater amounts. Like if I have more than a banana or so, I can feel it in my stomach. So just because it's animal-based or it can be part of an animal-based diet doesn't necessarily mean it works for me, you know. But the framework overall seem to make most sense because it removes um, many of the things that we know are inflammatory, that are gut irritating, especially in the plant world, um, without necessarily removing all of the plants. So it's socially more compatible. I think it's more, it's easier to maintain as a family in particular, you know, with two kids and, and a wife who might not necessarily be as, as strict about certain things as, as, as you are or as I am <laughs> for that matter. And so it, it, it felt like the right approach. And, you know, within that animal-based framework, sometimes I'm low carb, sometimes I'm no carb, sometimes I'm a lot of carb. And, you know, I go back and forth based on how I feel. 
What's your main source of meat? Uh, beef. Okay. Is it um, yeah. ground mm-hmm. beef, steaks, roast? When we purchase an entire cow okay. or the meat and bones and organs of an entire cow once a year, typically, um, we also just started raising meat rabbits. So they are pregnant right now. So oh. in about, I want to say six weeks, no, less, in, in less than a month, probably by now it's two weeks, we're going to have the first bunnies that three months later will be in our freezer. Um, so that's going to be an, a new addition to our diet. We haven't really had um, rabbit uh, consistently in the past. Um, and we also have chickens. So that's going to be then another source of, of meat for us. But it's predominantly beef so far. And it probably will be going forward too. I don't know if I've eaten rabbit before. It's... Yeah, it tastes like okay, chicken. Is... Very, very lean though. That's the only downside. Isn't there, wasn't there explorers that ate only rabbits and died of too much protein? It has a ton of protein and not a lot of fat. Okay. So that's the thing. You know, if you only eat rabbit, you're not going to get – there are no carbs, obviously, and, and very little fat. So you're missing out on the fat okay. um, or on a source of energy in general, but in particular uh, on fat. So, yeah, I wouldn't eat – and if you've seen, um, I think, what are we called, Alone or whatever, that show where they you know put people out in the wild – Whatever, you know, they hunt rabbits, but they cannot survive just on rabbit meat because it's got no okay. fat. Okay. I think you have to, like, eat you know? the eyeballs to get some fat. Yeah, or the yeah. brain, you know. Yeah. Uh, wow. So what are some fruits yeah. that do agree with you? Um, plantains, typically. Okay. So my wife's Costa Rican, so that's kind of a, you know, a, a natural kind of thing for her because she grew up on plantains. Um, beyond that, you know, anything that grows seasonally, you know, apples, pears, you know, we have strawberries in the backyard with apples and pears in the backyard too, or at least the trees thereof, uh, and, um, you know, figs, those kind of things, uh, mangoes, she buys a lot because again, she's from Costa Rica and grew up on mangoes, even though they are not native to Georgia, sure. um, or oranges, um, those kind of things. Okay. Peaches are native to Georgia, right? Peaches are, yeah. Actually, we, we, funny enough, I, I really like peaches, but we don't have them very often. I don't okay. Know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so tell me about your company, your supplement company. Why is there yeah. a need? I know why, but why is there a need to get organs and <laughs> supplements and not just eat the organs on your own? I mean, the best thing would be to eat the organs directly. Sure. You know, the, the problem is that most people just don't like the taste. And even for those who, who like the taste, I mean, sourcing... Certain organs like liver is, is relatively readily available, I want to say, but the more exotic organs, and by exotic I mean like, you know, thymus, you know, kidneys, pancreas, you know, those kind of things, um, brain, uh, you can't get here in the U.S. due to, you know, USDA regulations unless you butcher the animal yourself, um, are a little bit more difficult to, to source. And, and even with liver, you know, getting, you know, grass-fed, grass-finished, or liver from grass-fed, grass-finished cattle, um, is is not always easy. Even the sources that we use, like white oak pastures, you know, sometimes run out because they only have so many cows and so many livers, you know. Okay. And so it just becomes a convenience factor to have it freeze-dried in a capsule that you don't have to worry about, you know, thawing and keeping stored in the fridge and, you know, all of the things. You just pop your four capsules and you get the equivalent as far as the micronutrients are concerned of one ounce of fresh liver or any other organ meat for that matter. And so... It's a convenience factor. Um, it's not a magic pill by any means. It's just, you know, I eat it every day. So I know that I get my organs with every, every day with one meal. Um, and I don't have to worry about, you know, 
sourcing it fresh. I mean, we eat as much as we can fresh. I prefer raw liver because I don't like the taste of cooked liver either, to be honest. Um, some people do, um, but when they do, they typically do it with onions and all kinds of things that I don't handle well, you know, as it is. So that would not be an option for me. And so, you know, I just eat it in small pieces raw. I know uh, Paul Saladino like puts like chunks in the freezer and then just swallows the entire, you know, like ice cube kind of thing. Um, that's an option too, making pate or whatever, you know, I've done that in the past, but the capsules are just so convenient um, for pretty much the same nutrients. I mean, you lose maybe 5% with freeze drying, but even with cooking, you know, you lose some of the heat sensitive ones. So I guess it's, it's a wash really, you know, um, and so that's the reason. And the name of the supplement is MK Supplements. Yeah, very Michael Coomer supplements. It was super creative with that, with finding it. I love it. Yeah, why not? It's your name. (laughs) So what drove you to create the supplements? Um, It was something that, I mean, the the initial idea was actually from my wife because she said, you know, you need a a physical product in addition to, you know, the digital content you put out. You want to have something physical. And I'm like, yeah, but what's, what's something I mean, I, I've tested and tried and reviewed so many different supplements and most of which I don't use anymore for, you know, reasons, whatever reason. But I'm like, what is something that I could see myself not only using, but also then selling and standing behind for the rest of my life? And I'm like, well, it's organ meats because I truly believe that that's something we should eat on a consistent basis you know it may be not every single day but you know it should be part of your diet a regular part of your diet and obviously there are already brands out there great brands that i have you know that i have affiliate relationships to this day and that i you know can recommend uh, to to friends and family but most of the brands that are out there um you know sell their supplements in plastic bottles for obvious reasons because you know they don't break they are less, they are not as heavy. They are, you know, cheaper to ship and a, a ton of other reasons why you want to use plastic. But as we started discovering another area of our health that we really neglected for many, many years, and that is, you know, endocrine disrupting chemicals in, in plastics, especially plastics that come in contact with food. I'm like, okay, using a plastic bottle is, is a no go. And I don't really want to buy products anymore that come in plastic for health reasons, but also for environmental reasons, because there is too, we have too much plastic anyway. I mean, it all goes in the trash and landfill. I don't need to be, I don't need to contribute to that. So I'm like, okay, I want to do something with glass bottles, metal lids. And the other nuance to that is, you know, supplements, high quality supplements are usually expensive. And I'm like, okay, let's try to create something that adds a little bit more value. Let's, you know, throw 45 servings into a bottle into a glass bottle instead of the regular 30, which means, you know, narrow margin. But since this is my kind of the side business of my blogging business, I'm like, I can't afford doing that, you know, because I don't, that's not my primary source of income. And so that's, those are, were the two reasons really to provide value um, and to, to help other people, you know, get organs into the diet uh, with the least amount of, you know, spending while still getting the best product that's out there. I mean, product-wise, you know, it's, it's exactly the same product as some of the other competitors that I've used in the past and that I've, you know, recommended. Um, it's exactly the same New Zealand, you know, uh, 100% grass-fed, grass-finished, you know, organ meats that some others are using as well, uh, freeze-dried, non-defatted, et cetera, but in a glass bottle and 45 servings. You know, that's kind of our 
value proposition, if you will. Well, it shows how much integrity you have because how many people sell a supplement or support a supplement and don't even use it? And your whole idea was, yeah. I want to support the supplement or be proud of it the rest of my life. Yeah, right. that's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that applies to, you know, some of the other brands that I've worked with, you know, that applies to them as well. There are a lot of, you know, like Paul Teladino, you know, a great guy, you know, and, and his, you know, brand obviously is, is top notch as well. Um, but I, I agree there are, there are, there are a lot of brands out there that, don't really care about the product or the details or the customer, you know, they just, you know, realize that there is a lot of money to be made in the supplements business or they can be. Yeah. If you sell a cheap product with a high margin (laughs) to as many people as possible. Yeah. But how much damage are you doing to people with this cheap product? So all this plastic, what's it doing to our testosterone? So the plastic itself isn't doing anything as far as I know, but they are, um, Endocrine disrupting chemicals, so-called xenoestrogens, that mimic the sex hormone estrogen. And when that leaches out of the plastic, you know, when exposed to heat, when exposed to liquids, um, when exposed to salty or acidic foods, etc., um, those xenoestrogens can bind to the estrogen receptors in your body and basically mimic the function of estrogen. And obviously in men, not a good thing, but even in women, too much estrogen is not good either. You know, it can, you know, lead to, you know, the development of cancer. It can obviously, you know, it can lower testosterone because it's kind of like the, the counter, you know, part to testosterone, which is also important in women, not just in men. I mean, we just have more of it, but testosterone also plays an important role in men. But it goes, you know, uh, to infertility um, and a host of other issues that, that can be attributed to those xenoestrogens, you know. And so when we learned about that, and I had a, a good conversation with uh, Dr. Anthony Che, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him or if he wasn't on your show already, not yet. but he's like, yeah, he's like that guy when it comes to xenoestrogens and, and the harm they can do and, um, and some of the ways to mitigate them and, you know, try to avoid them and, and avoiding plastic in combination with food is probably one of the, the lowest hanging fruits, um, you know, you, you have to to reduce your exposure. You're not going to get away from it, but you can at least reduce your exposure to hopefully levels your body can handle. Because plastic is new to humans. We didn't have this yeah. 500 years ago. Right. Yeah. So do you yeah. track your testosterone? Because on your blog that, okay. Yeah. So if I'm coming to you, I'm 35 and I have low testosterone, how would you guide me into raising my testosterone? Um, I, I mean, you know, obviously you... There are various factors that can influence that. Um, it could be lack of exercise, could be lack of sleep, um, could be your exposure to xenoestrogens, could be, you know, stress, could be a combination of those things. It could also be, you know, there could, there could also be genetic factors that your levels are lower okay. than someone else's. I mean, there are, you know, genetics are obviously play play a role, but um, usually you want to exhaust all of those options first before you consider doing anything else. Um, I've seen, funny enough, um, when I eat more carbohydrates, um, it, and, and not, I've not necessarily correlated that directly with my blood levels, but at least based on my, my libido, I can tell that when I have more carbs, my libido is higher. If that necessarily translates into higher, or if that's due to higher testosterone or not, I don't know, but the more I was thinking about it, I'm like, well, and if you deprive your body of something, if you fast a lot, and at a time, you know, especially during keto, I was fasting a lot, every day, really, 
you know, you always tell your body, you know, there is, you know, resources are scarce, you know. Well, in those situations, from an evolutionary perspective, you know, that's not necessarily time to reproduce, right? Because if resources are not there, you don't want to reproduce. You don't want to bring offspring into an environment where you don't have the resources to, you know, to make sure they survive. And so by changing my dietary habits, by changing my sleep and stuff, I've noticed that my libido has changed significantly. And coincidentally with that, also, you know, testosterone levels. And, and so that's, that's one thing that I would explore first. Usually, I would say for most people, lifestyle factors, diet, exercise, sleep, are probably the, and, and xenoestrogens are probably the, the most contributing factors of having lower than normal testosterone levels. And by low, I don't mean below the official cutoff line of like below 250 for men. I mean, like if you're like in the, you know, 300 or 400 and you're, you know, 25 to 45 years old, that's low, you know? Yeah. I have a lot of friends that are on testosterone replacement therapy. Yeah. And, you know, and funny enough, I tried that and I've written about it on I my saw blog that, as yeah. well. And, uh-huh. And, and, and in hindsight, you know, I, I don't think you should have done it at the time. I, I still would have done it eventually, you know, just to, to see what it does and how I feel and, and, and what it changes. Um, but I did it at the same time as cutting out all the xenoestrogens from our environment. And, and then when I, and, and then, you know, it, it took, obviously, you know, then I did it for a while and then I, I stopped doing it. And, you know, my levels, you know, dropped initially because my body needed, you know, time to ramp up its own production again. And now it's been like two years later and now my levels are actually higher, significantly higher than they used to be um, without exogenous testosterone. So I'm like, okay, I could have probably achieved the very same thing and ended up at the very same spot that I'm now without going through the HRT, the hormone replacement therapy in between. Um, but, you know, even if you do so, uh, and, and I mean, I'm not saying, you know, oh, don't touch testosterone. I think there is a, there are use cases for hormone replacement therapy. I think many people can do well on it. But one thing that you need to consider is what, what, whatever hormone you get into your body um, from the outside influences that, that feedback loop that prevents your body from making its own. Right. So if you and the same with melatonin, if you take melatonin, your body stops making its own or at least significantly you know, reduce it. The same with testosterone. So if you do that, be aware that your body stops making its own, you know, and and unless you want to do that for the rest of your life, you know, at some point you might reach the point of no return where your body is so used to not making it maybe 10, you know, 15 years down the line and then you want to stop doing it and then you might be in trouble. You know, I've not seen any good. Um, case studies or scientific evidence that suggest, okay, what happens if you do HRT for 15 or 20 years and then you stop? It can't be good. You know, what, what, I, I can Im only imagine it can't be yeah. good. Yeah. So how low did your testosterone go? Cause I, did it go up to 1800 when you were on therapy? Yeah. 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 So the, the goal was, um, and, and I was obviously working with a, with a medical professional and um, my, my testosterone before I made all of those lifestyle changes and before I started with HRT was uh, between 280 and 320 were my, the two tests that I took uh, several months. Did apart, you have low right? libido and, at those levels? Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh -huh. And I mean, yeah, no, no, low now in, in retrospect, 
low, but at that at the point it was for me it was normal at the okay. time, you know. But now in retrospect, now that I have you know relatively high libido, I'm like okay, yeah, it was low, you know. Um, and and the goal was to get roughly to a thousand, so within the normal range, you know. I'm, I'm you know there there is obviously a difference between doing what you know the liver king did <laughs> um, and you know just filling yourself up with stuff to look like the liver king. Um, or getting to a level where it's still within the normal range. I think that the upper cutoff is like 1100. So my doctor told me the goal was get to a level of a healthy 25 year old. And I am 41 right now. At the time I was 39. Um, you know, that's the goal. Get to that level, no higher. And so, you know, he started with a suggested dose and it was already relatively low. Most people that I knew that did HRT had significantly injected much more than, than I. So I was already on the conservative side. But I, I responded really well, and my levels kept going up and up and up. And I was reducing my dose. You know, every few weeks I went down and down and down and down. And at the the height at the at the end before I stopped, as you said, I was at eighteen hundred, whatever the unit is, nanogram per deciliter, whatever it is. Um, but the amount I injected was the least I had done in those two years. Wow! So at that point, though, you and, removed all plastics and you were living. And I. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I, I ate more carbs. I slept longer and better. Um, I had removed, you know, plastics. We stopped using most personal care products or replaced them with ones that did not have or that don't have xenoestrogens. Uh, so we did a lot of, we implemented a lot of those changes. And I'm like, well, you know, obviously now I can prove that removing those things had, had any impact because I'm on HRT. Right? <laughs> so <laughs> what am I going to do? So, well, you know, I stopped. And so, and then, you know, as I said, my levels initially, you know, dropped and then they came back up and now, you know, they are at a level, um, you know, somewhere around five to 800 where I'm like, okay, I feel comfortable now. This is where I want to be, um, without having to use testosterone. Okay. You know, does, and, does 1800 feel uh, that much different than 200? Um, okay. yes, yes. I want to say it feels different in terms of, you know, I felt it most with the recovery after working out. I was recovered so much quicker. Um, it didn't really, I mean, my, my body didn't really change much. Funny enough, I even, you know, especially during keto, I was so ripped and everyone like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I was doing nothing, nothing in the sense of, you know, injecting anything or using any pharmaceuticals. That's just, you know, what diet and lifestyle did. And then with testosterone, I, I, I gained, I want to say maybe 10 pounds and I filled out a little bit more. There was more water retention, I guess. So I, I looked a little bit fuller, but even now, um, I just stepped on the scale this morning for Francis and my height during testosterone was at 212. Now I'm at 210. How tall are you? So, um, I'm six okay. feet, 182 centimeters. And so, you know, I, I still, maybe I'm a little bit less full. Um, but I'm still, you know, my body composition hasn't changed. I'm at eight to nine percent body fat. Um, I'm, I'm still as strong. Funny enough, my strongest lifts I had um, without, you know, testosterone. I, I deadlifted 500 pounds, 505 pounds twice, and front squatted over 400 pounds um, without anything. While I was, while I had my lowest levels of testosterone. Funny enough. Really. Um, so. Yeah, you know, while yeah. you were at 200 or 285, you deadlifted mm -hmm. and front squatted more than taking testosterone. That's mm -hmm. crazy. Yeah, yeah, and I, 
it, it might have just been, you know, that the type of the training cycle I was in, you know, but I think the bottom line really is if you do testosterone or hormone replacement therapy within the bounds of your normal range, even if you are maybe a little bit over, it's not going to turn you into hope. Okay. You know, it's not going to, um, you know, it's not going to significantly improve your strength. I think what it improves is your recovery. I think that was the most important thing. But with that, I've also noticed it increased my resting heart rate and lowered my HRV. That can't be good. Well, I mean, and, and I'm still thinking about it. Is, is that a good or a bad thing? I mean, it's a sign that my body was probably building and rebuilding at a higher rate. Okay. I was metabolizing probably stuff more quick, more quickly than, um, than with lower levels of testosterone. And I'm like, is that bad or is that good? I'm, I'm still not sure about it, but you know, now that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not on testosterone, you know, my resting heart rate at night sometimes drops below 40, you know, and my HRV is consistently, um, somewhere between 50 and a hundred, you know, I mean, obviously it varies, you know, based on all kinds of factors that, um, that are stress and, and, and recovery and workout related. But with testosterone, I was consistently resting heart rate related above 50, 55 okay. um, is, was my, my, my average. And so I dropped by at least 10 beats per minute um, at night. Okay. And again, if that's a good thing, that maybe that means you know, my, I'm putting less stress on my heart over time. You know? It might also mean that I'm rebuilding slower you know that my and, and i can tell i'm more sore i'm sore for longer you know when i'm you know tweak something or whatever it takes longer everything is a little bit slower you know and is that good or is that bad could it maybe you know optimize that by going back on on testosterone and getting back to like the 1200 and really being you know where a 25 year old would be maybe that would be ideal but I'm not too sure about that. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, especially with hormones, with any type of hormone, uh, and also with melatonin and some of the other like benign things, I've, I've gotten extremely careful because I've realized, you know, whatever you put in, your body stops making, and does it, you know, that that can't be good. As, you know? Yeah, and as the older I get too, there's always a risk where long term, are there going to be consequences ten, fifteen years yeah. from now? Yeah. Yeah. On the flip side, obviously, you know, if, if, if you're, if, if I see in, <clears throat> in 10, 15 years that my, my T levels drop and there is nothing I can do to raise them, I might go back on to get, you know, to the, you know, 800 to a thousand, you know, because there are, there is also a lot of evidence that this is beneficial for you, you know, as you age, you know, bone density and all kinds of things. So I'm, I'm not saying that I will never do that again, but I will certainly not do that if I can maintain my current levels without it. I agree. And I think taking TRT at 50 is different than taking it at 25 years old. Oh, no, I mean, absolutely. If you need TRT at the age of 25 or, you know, I would say if you're below 40, there should not be a reason unless you, I don't know, you had like, you know, injured your, your testes or whatever. And, you know, you don't produce, you know, naturally in those cases, you know, obviously, but if you're somewhat healthy or at least, you know, not injured, then I think lifestyle interventions um, are the way to go, and they're effective. I totally agree. So what kind? So maybe you don't know this, but you're not the average forty-one-year-old. You like have the body of like a twenty-five-year-old. What kind of workouts are you doing? I, I think that uh, I think that humans are supposed to, um, you know, kind of 
no, I'm not saying that because I don't want to say that I should, you know, all humans should be like me, but <clears throat> I think that the physical shape that I'm in is normal for a 40 year old or 41 year old. I think if, if you're not, then you probably have been doing something not quite sure. right. Well, um, nor normal, normal and common, are, I guess are two different things. Yes. Yeah. That's it's a good normal point. Yeah. to look yeah. as healthy as you, but I, I promise yeah. it's not as common to look like you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I do, I, I've done CrossFit for the past few years, okay. but I've actually, um, and I started kickboxing recently and, and, and experimented with jujitsu. <coughs> but you know, the older I get, the more I realize that walking is significantly, um, underappreciated and underrated. So I started walking a lot, you know, we have a German shepherd. And so I really enjoy, you know, taking long walks with him because it's very low impact. And, you know, I come back and, you know, I have 350, you know, active calories on my Apple Watch, you know, that I, I might not burn significantly more during a short, you know, hit workout. Um, but I think, you know, just generally speaking, I think I want to stick to mobility work, to resistance training. I think it's important to lift heavy stuff, to load your body and to load your bones and your ligaments and joints and everything with, with heavy weights relative to what you can do. Of course, um, to do, you know, high intensity stuff from time to time, uh, be it CrossFit, be it, you know, kickboxing or, you know, the carol bike that I, I use several times a week to, you know, deplete my, or at least partially my glycogen stores. Um, and, but I think the older you get, the more and more mobility and, you know, making sure you, you maintain your range of motion is important. So I do, you know, mobility work, not as often as I should. Um, but as often as I, uh, as I can. And, um, yeah, and, and that combination has been working fairly well for me. I agree. Um, I have a lot of older patients in my practice and loss of balance is a huge decrease in quality of life. Yeah. And I feel like yeah, no, I absolutely the agree. older you get, it's easier to start at 40 than at 75 to increase your balance. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and, and that's, you know, and, and even I can tell, you know, like, when I, you know, wrestle with the kids on the floor or whatever, you know, getting up is different at 40 than it was at 20, you know, yeah. and it's only a, a small difference, but there is a difference, you know, and, and I'm like, okay, this is really a reminder that you need to work on, on movement. I mean, I even, when I was in Costa Rica with, um, at, at the, um, the animal based retreat, there were a couple of people doing just movement work, which sounds you know, like some hippie kind of, you know, they're like rolling around and, you know, do all kinds of, you know, funky stuff, but just being able to move efficiently and smooth and without pain, I think is incredibly important. Oh my gosh. I used to think so too, but I'm in my mid thirties and if I don't stay moving now, I'll stiffen up too. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's what the body, yeah. Okay, ahead, one more thing I want to touch on in your eight pillars of health that I, I love that you brought up is connection with family or connection with community. Yeah. Do you work solely from home? And are your, are your kids yes. homeschooled? Okay. Yes. So how do you got, what's a typical day for you guys? Mm. Uh, typical day. I mean, a typical, if there is such a thing as a typical day, but you know, usually first thing in the morning, you know, we, we, we go, well, I, I get up and I, you know, check emails, respond to, uh, to emails and stuff, messages, what have you check, you know, the numbers from the previous day. Um, etc. And then once the kids get up, typically, you know, they go out and uh, make sure the rabbits and the chickens uh, are all good. They have, you know, food and water and everything. 
Um, and then, you know, they start playing their thing. I go for a walk with a dog or I go work out. Um, Kathy and my wife does the same thing. And, um, and then it depends on the, the, the day. Like yesterday, they went to a, um, it was like a meetup of other homeschoolers where they have like, you know, a free learning nature centric kind of thing where, you know, this week was about learning about frogs and tadpoles and stuff. And so they would go there and it's like a group of, of kids between the age of three and 10, I think where, you know, they just explore together, you know, certain topics or do whatever the heck they want. If they don't want to participate in, you know, in, in the session, they, like, uh, Lucas, our, our younger one, he, you know, preferred to play with Legos while everyone else was learning about frogs. Um, but, you know, that's, that's one of the things that we do. And then, you know, the kids do, you know, any sports that they like, like our daughter, she does gymnastics and, you know, is with people there. She does jujitsu, you know, is with people there. Um, and among us, the adults, basically, we try to, you know, maintain <clears throat> a tribe of like-minded people um, that, you know, either follow similar dietary patterns or, you know, make similar lifestyle choices, um, similar parenting styles. So it, I think it's important and, and we try to do that as best as we can to find tribes that, you know, that are like-minded and that you can, you know, share stuff with and, and, and communicate with and spend time with. Um, Family-wise, unfortunately, my wife's family is in Costa Rica, my family is in Austria, <clears throat> so there is nobody close by, which is a real bummer. That's really the one thing that we are missing here that I would complain about, <laughs> you know, about being in the, in, in the United States, that we are so far away from family because, you know, it's not just we can just you know, drop off the kids at the grandparents, you know, if we need to do something. So... It's all about, you know, maintaining uh, friendships and making new friends and finding like-minded people, which was somewhat challenging over the past few years, as you can imagine, as, you know, um, the division between, you know, different camps got bigger and bigger. Um, and that's, that's still the case, but uh, I think you can always find, pick up people in, from specific areas where you are on the same page. You know, you don't have to be on the same page everywhere. Like... You know, we, for example, we are not incredibly religious, but we have friends who are very religious and we share the same dietary habits and, you know, other lifestyle choices. So we, you know, get along well. We don't agree on everything, but we agree on that. And then, you know, vice versa, we have friends that <clears throat> might be on the same page from a religious perspective, but have maybe different dietary patterns. So as long as you, you know, you find common ground, I guess, um, and it doesn't bother you what they are doing in other areas, then, you know, you're, you're good to go. It's just, I think, finding the perfect match where everyone, you know, agrees on everything, I think is you're going to be alone for a very long time. Oh, my God. And then that's such an important point, Mike. You don't have to agree on every single thing yeah. to be that person's friend. Yeah. 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 It's uh, You need to agree on something, and if that something is what, what bonds you, you know, that that's good enough. I mean, as long as, obviously, you know, it, most people that I meet are good people, you know. We just might agree on certain things. I mean, I have... Um, good contacts who are vegan, you know, which is some of my thing, as you can imagine, but they're good people, you know, and there are things that we agree on and we can share and we can do together, even though we don't necessarily share the very same meal, you know, and that's okay. Um, and yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, you probably agree with this too. I think community is just as important as diet, as sleep, because if you surround yourself with terrible people, you're, you're going to be so stressed <clears throat> out about it. Yeah, it's and it, it's finding the balance. I mean, you know, one thing is 
I think it, it can go in, you can do maybe not your, you, you, you may, maybe you can um, harm your mental health by exposing yourself to a lot of people that you absolutely don't agree with and that stress you out all the time. <clears throat> and that's where, you know, the many people say, oh, you know, I just leave, I just want to be alone, you know, live somewhere in the woods without having contact with anyone. I think that's the extreme of, of that. I think you need to find um, a middle ground. I don't think humans are meant to live alone. Um, but I also think that I need to be, I don't need to be friends with everyone and I need to be seeing people every single day either. You know, I need to be happy with myself, you know, first and foremost, so I can be happy with others, you know, and I think a lot of people, uh, not a lot of maybe, but there are some that kind of try to compensate for their lack of unhappiness with themselves by, you know, just being around others all the time. And that's not a good or a healthy thing either. I think you need to be you need to be able to be alone, and you need to be able to be with people. You know, and you need to pick and choose when is the right moment for for those things. You know, to make that. Oh happen. yeah, I mean, if you're not happy with yourself and you're looking for happiness in other people, that's a recipe yeah. for disaster. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So we're coming up on the hour mark. I always end with, what's one takeaway you'd want the audience to have from this podcast? Huh, that's a good one. I guess there are many, many takeaways that I um, I like to share. But I think the one thing is try to improve something every single day. You know, don't try to make it perfect. You know, in the shortest amount of time, don't try to get from you know from eating a crappy diet and and sleeping you know crappy and and doing all the wrong things and and try to mimic someone who has you know walked that path and has, you know, completed or not completed, but who is significantly farther ahead in the journey, you know, overnight, you're going to set yourself up for failure and be frustrated that you can't do it all in one shot. Just do something better tomorrow and then do something better to uh, the next day again and keep improving a little bit every single time until you reach where you want to end up and don't get frustrated by, you know, by things that don't uh, work out or if you, if you, if you, you know, can't make it happen as quickly. It, it's a journey at the end of the day. I mean, I started this journey several years ago. It didn't happen overnight. That doesn't mean that you have to make the same mistakes along the way as I did. You know, learn from the mistakes of others and take shortcuts. But don't try to, you know, change everything um, overnight, especially if you're not the only one making the decisions. If you have a spouse or a partner or kids that might have a slightly different opinion or that might be on a slightly different, you know, point in that journey and they maybe have to catch up first you know or you're the one catching up but the bottom line is just try to improve and and have a goal in mind and um and get there eventually you know and enjoy what you're doing instead of just you know waiting for reaching the end goal to finally be happy you know enjoy the the, the journey the Vegas the seal we say in german you know that i don't know if there is a good translation in english but um, it's the, the, the path that, that is really the goal and not the, the end goal. You know, so appreciate what you're doing, be present, uh, and enjoy what you have right now and the progress you're making instead of waiting for that big win at the end. I love that. Cause I'm guilty of that. How many times have I thought to myself, once I get to this position, then I'll be happy. And then you right. get there, you're like, okay, it's actually not that much different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and then you're less motivated to do it again, you know? Exi- but if you're if you take the small wins every day and don't celebrate the big ones to the extent, and that was actually a good 
um, um, podcast episode with uh, with Huberman, where he said, you know, if you celebrate the heck out of a big win, then you know your your uh, dopamine levels, I guess, drop down so far that it's very difficult to motivate yourself to go for another win. If you keep it down, you know, it's much easier to continue the path upward versus you know having to drop first and then you know redoing the whole thing over and over again. Was it his own podcast or what podcast was it? I think so. Okay. Yeah. I think I think I'll so. check it out. So tell the audience yeah. where they can find you, where they can buy your supplements, where they can read your blog. Yeah, so michaelkummer.com, first name, last name, one word, um, is is my blog. Shop.michaelkummer.com uh, is the shop. Uh, very easy. Um, you can also find me on Instagram, mkummer82, and on YouTube. If you look for Michael Coomer, I don't know what my handle there I is. I think it's Michael Coomer because that's where I found the, da- the oh, Dannenberg yeah, yeah. interview. I think <laughs> so. I'll put yeah. it in the show notes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the podcast. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Man. Talk to you soon. It was fun. <laughs> Bye-bye.